0: Well, join me as we stand together to read this morning's sermon text, and you can turn in your Bible, I hope you have one, to Second Timothy chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, you'll find today's text on page 996 in a chairback Bible that should be in front of you. Uh, as many of you know, we spent the vast majority of this year in our morning service walking through the Acts of the Apostles, and it was a study that concluded uh, last week. And What I want to do today as Acts 28 had this open end of Paul preaching the gospel unhindered in Rome. Uh, What I want to do is turn to his final words to his beloved son in the faith, Timothy, as we see something about uh, Paul's heart, uh, his mind and soul at the very last hour of his life, as uh, Paul has largely occupied so much of our attention since July of this year. What was he like at the very end of his days? So we're going to look at just verses 6, 7, and 8. Of 2 Timothy chapter 4. So let me read those for us and then pray for our time and we'll begin together. Uh, So listen once again as the Lord does speak to you through his perfect word. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Our Lord, we thank you for the steadfastness of Jesus Christ, and pray even this morning through the study of your word that you would direct our hearts to him who loves us, who gave himself up for us, who strengthens us even now by the spirit that we might hear his word of truth. And we pray all of these things in his precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Nicknames can sometimes have a peculiar power to define a person more than their given name. And I wonder if any of you in the room today have been known perhaps for years, maybe even decades, more by a nickname uh, than a given name. And is there anything perhaps that that nickname may, maybe says about you, your personality, your, your character? Well, one such person who was uh, that way was old King Ethelred of England. He, he ruled in England from something like 978 AD to about 1016. And he was popularly known in the land as Ethelred the Unready. And the reason he was called Ethelred the Unready was not only because he was, uh, by all accounts at the time, according to his contemporaries, something of an ineffective ruler, uh, but he was famous, uh, probably really infamous, uh, for leading the kingdom in such a way that the Danes overran them in the midst of battle. And so the rest of his life, even to his very death, he was known as Ethelred. The unready. Now, we don't have a nickname of sorts that you can give the Apostle Paul. Of course, he wasn't popularly dubbed as such, but it would be entirely appropriate and thoroughly right for us to even say that we could call him the Apostle who was ready, uh, we could call him Paul, the, the ready, for throughout the book of Acts, as we have studied uh, throughout these many recent months, what we have seen, uh, Paul always was ready uh, to give an account for the hope that was in him, to preach the word in season and out of season. He was always ready to persuade and to prove that uh, Jesus was the Christ. And as uh, we come to the end of his life today, we, we see that even there at the very end, uh, the Apostle Paul was ready to face what was clearly on the way and so I wonder if if you stood at the end of your days uh, Would you be described as a person who was ready for what was coming or would you be a person who was unready? for what was coming? You know, we come to the end, don't we, in these last few weeks of 2022, it's quite normal uh, for many a person to be thinking about the end of things as a conclusion to another year is soon to dawn upon us. Now, students and children, what you need to know is that you're at a stage in your life as a student or as a child where so much of your life is about starting things, starting a new school year, starting a new class. Starting in a a new friendship, perhaps starting in a new job for the first time, perhaps starting for the first time driving a car on your own. Uh, But there's going to be a shift in every person's life, if the Lord Jesus tarries, that you you cease to think about starting, and you think much more about ending, Uh, because I, I trust that you know that you can start well and end poorly, and no one remembers how you started You can start poorly and end well, and everyone remembers how you ended. Uh, We want to think about something, about ending well, enduring until the very end, is what we want to see in our text today. I have questions at the forefront of my mind, things like, how is it that a person can get to the end of their life completely confident that they have run the race well? How is it that a person can get to the end of their days utterly confident and assured that they will hear the Savior sing over them, Well done, good and faithful servant. Because the text that's before us, these three simple verses, it shows us not only did Paul endure to the end, it's going to also show us how Paul endured to the end, which ought to mean something to us. As the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians, Here is a man who was shipwrecked four times. Five times he was beaten, 40 lashes minus one. Three times he was beaten with rods. He was stoned to the point of death. He knew, he knew danger from robbers and from rivers. He knew animosity and opposition from Jew and Gentile alike, even from many people that called him friends. How does such a person not ever get to the point where he wants to tap out? How does such a person endure... To the end, Uh, the question that belongs to every single person in the room today is how do you make it to the end or you can stand with confidence in your dying breath before the Lord in the exact same way the Apostle Paul did. Because there are all kinds of various ways in which you might find yourself wanting to tap out right now in your own life. Perhaps it's in a relationship. Perhaps it's even in a marriage. Perhaps it's a job. Perhaps it's a calling that the Lord has given to you and difficulty has risen to such a level where you just don't think you can keep going. So how is it that the Apostle Paul endures to the end? That's our theme in enduring to the end. And there's a variety of ways you can kind of notice the text that's before us and it's three simple verses. As I read it, you may have noticed Paul references three tenses because in verse 6 he thinks about the present, verse 7 he thinks about the past, and in verse 8 he thinks about the future. Or you can think about kind of the directional nature of what he's saying there. Because in verse 6, he looks downward, kids, as it were. He looks downward to the grave. Verse 7, he looks backward to his previous ministry and past labor for Jesus Christ. And then in verse 8, he, he looks up. He looks forward to uh, the day of judgment. But what I want you to see from these uh, three simple verses are, are three things that are necessary for a person to endure To the end in Jesus Christ. Because you you must know that the Bible tells us that that Christians, God's people, they can endure. They must endure. And I trust we'll see by the end. There's a promise that belongs to all of God's people that they will endure to the end. So enduring in Jesus Christ means, number one, you must face the inevitable. You see how verse 6 begins. Uh, Paul says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. Uh, you need to know something about the context of this letter to know exactly why Paul is saying what he's saying here in these verses. As best we can tell from the historical record, after Acts 28 closed, Paul was in house arrest there in Rome. Some two years later, he was let out. He began to go about his normal ministry through the area of Asia Minor. And then in time, he was rearrested at the instigation of this metal worker named Alexander. And so when he's writing here in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he's in this cold cavernous prison, this this dark and dank jail that was known as the Mamertine prison there in Rome. Uh, Verse 16, if you glance down to chapter 4 verse 16, you'll see he's already made a first initial preliminary defense there in Rome. And so he's writing to Timothy. Uh, what is very much is his last will and testament. What you have before you in the page in front of you is the, the final uh, recorded words uh, from the uh, Apostle Paul. And, and what he's been telling Timothy to this point in the first three chapters is really something you could summarize as, as Timothy, the pastor there at Ephesus, uh, you've been entrusted with the gospel in your ministry, and, and Timothy, you must endure in the gospel ministry. We know Timothy was something of a, of a timid soul. And what Paul seems to want to do in this letter, and his, his final words to Timothy, and he's even going to beg Timothy to come to him quite soon, he's wanting to take this, this timid pastor and inflame him as the language of chapter 1, turn him into this, this torch that's going to burn uh, brightly and gloriously for the Lord. And in many ways, that's what I hope this text will do for you today. Uh, it might take you in your place of timidity, a place where you want to maybe tap out. And see the Lord through his spirit and through his word inflame you like a torch for the Lord's glory. But the the last command of verse 5, the immediately preceding verse, you'll notice is fulfill your ministry. Paul kind of worked up to this point of a a peroration at the beginning of chapter 4. It was this kind of summary charge that he gave to Timothy. He said, you know, I'm going to call on heaven as my witness. Timothy, preach the word. And then he rattled off all of these commands that belong to a faithful gospel ministry, the last of which, the final phrase of of verse 5, is fulfill your ministry. And then you want to connect that logic to what comes in verse 6. He says, Timothy, fulfill your ministry. Verse 6, for I am already being offered as a drink offering, poured out as a drink offering. You could change the translation to catch the logic a little bit better. Simply say, Timothy, fulfill your ministry because I'm about ready to die. He's passing the baton from one generation of minister to the next. And this language here of a drink offering is language that just comes from The Old Testament sacrificial system, Uh, kids in the Old Testament, uh, the the law commanded you many times throughout your life, many times throughout the year, you would take an animal and you would bring it to the priests and they would kill the animal, they would cut the animal up, they would put it on the altar, and there it would burn. And what the Lord had commanded to conclude that burnt offering uh, was near the end, the Levites were to take wine and they were to pour it over the top of that burnt offering So that the fragrance that rose would be a sweet and pleasing smell unto the Lord. And this idea of being a drink offering was something that evidently dominated Paul's mind. Because he said the same thing almost virtually to the Philippians in chapter 2. He said, hold fast to the word of life lest I run my course in vain. And then he goes on to say, for if I am to be poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice of your faith, I'm glad. I rejoice. And now he's saying, well, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering before the Lord as he's writing there in the cold cavern that is the Mamertine prison. I want you to see that he moves from possibility to the Philippians, if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, and he moves to inevitability with Timothy. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. Uh, that's a normal part of human life, isn't it? There comes a time when you, you cease to think about the possibility of death. And more so, you think about the inevitability of death. That if the Lord tarries, it's going to happen. Not just that it might happen. Well, it, it must happen. And parents, I hope you are training your children, however young they are, uh, to know that a death is on the way if the Lord doesn't return in our lifetime. I hope those of you who are grandparents, even some of you in the room perhaps today, great-grandparents, know that there's this funny phenomenon that can belong to old age. uh, That instead of becoming someone who is sweeter with each passing decade, more patient with each passing year, you just become more bitter and, and cranky. And it's hard to end well isn't it true, one of the best things that you can give the next generation of, of grandchildren, great-grandchildren, children in your family is looking at the end with hope. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. and I have faith-filled expectancy for what is on the way. So here's Paul. He's facing the inevitable. Several years ago, a uh, church out of state uh, contacted me and wanted me to consider being uh, their senior pastor. And it was a church that's very old, centuries old, uh, something of a, even a, a relic in American religious history. And if you had uh, driven by the church, you would have noticed that the church owned a large plot of land across the street. And it wasn't like What you can often find in North Texas, large plots of land across the street from churches, large plots of land that are full of homes, stores, businesses, schools, and the like. Uh, This was a large plot of land that was full of stones, uh, particularly tombstones, as so often happens with these old churches. And you know, don't you, that throughout the centuries of this church's ministry, uh, people would have been coming on the Lord's Day, Uh, ready and eager to encounter the Lord Jesus Christ, but there would have been this quality, perhaps this sobriety within their soul that would have been quite different than our own. As you would have marched into church, walking by hundreds of tombstones along the way, knowing that this is an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ that is on the precipice of eternity. And that kind of sobriety is clearly filling Paul's mind, because you see how verse 6 ends. He goes on to say, "...the time of my departure." has come. Uh, The word "their departure, in the original uh, world world of Paul, it was actually a nautical term. So you can think of, of a ship that was unmoored and just began to drift out to sea. That's the image that Paul's using here, is that in his coming death, it's as though he's going to be detached. He's going to depart from the harbor that is life here on earth, and he's just going to begin to drift. He's going to make his voyage to the heavenly shore, that is, his in Jesus Christ. So if you're going to endure in Jesus Christ, you must face the inevitable. And number two, you must strive to be faithful. And you see these staccato-like statements. Fill up chapter 4, verse 7. He says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith. And in the original, the order is actually quite different than the way it's translated here in the English. It would sound something like, the good fight I have fought. The race I have finished the faith I have kept. And each one of them is actually using athletic imagery taken from the athletic arena of Paul's time. I grew up in a family that loved to watch the Olympic games. Uh, maybe your childhood or Past history was similar. Uh, particularly, we love to watch the Summer Olympics and uh, the standout stars to us in the Summer Olympics were the, were the sprinters. You know, we love to watch the, uh, the track and field events and of course, it's always the sprinters uh, that get all of the glory. And I hope you know that the Bible often uses this metaphor of the Christian life as a race, uh, but it, it, it's a race that's meant to come to the finish line, not like Usain Bolt comes to the finish line, flying across with a smile on his face. It's much more of crossing the finish line, creeping, crawling, grabbing whatever it takes to get there. It reminds me of this story of a, of a journalist years ago named Art Carey, who was something of an amateur marathoner. And after running the Boston Marathon, he wrote an article in the Philadelphia Inquirer that tried to capture something of that agony that belongs to, to running a marathon. And he began to speak about hitting the wall around mile 20. In the marathon, and he said this, By now the rigors of having run nearly 20 miles are beginning to tell. My stride is shortened, my legs are tight, my breathing is shallow and fast, my joints are becoming raw and worn, my neck aches from all the joints that have ricocheted up my spine, half-dollar blisters sting the soles of my feet. I'm beginning to feel queasy and lightheaded. I want to stop running. I've hit the wall." And uh, if you've ever run long distances before, and it doesn't even have to be as long as a marathon, you, you might know there, there almost inevitably seems to be this point where you, you've hit the wall. And everything within you screams, I just can't keep going. Uh, but you know, you must keep going. So he continues in this article by saying, finally, the distance and the distinct profile of the Prudential building looms on the horizon. I begin to speed up my pace. I can see the yellow stripe 50 yards ahead Then I hear clapping and cheers, 10 yards, the finish line, an explosion of euphoria. He says, I I ran the, the best marathon of my life. And then he ends with this sentence, while times and places are important. And breaking a personal record is thrilling, especially as you grow older. The real joy of the Boston Marathon is just finishing the race. That is something that Paul is going to allude to in three simple statements here in verse 7. The simple, glorious joy of just finishing the race. Because what does he say first of all? I have fought... The good fight. You could translate that as, I've, I've contended the good contest. Seems to picture something uh, of a bo- boxing match there in uh, the ancient world. And, and students, you want to recognize importantly and significantly, Paul puts this modifier, this adjective there in that first phrase. He doesn't say, I've fought the fight. He says, I fought the good fight. Because there's oftentimes, isn't there in, in the Christian life, that we fight battles that aren't good battles. We find ourselves immersed in conflicts that are not good conflicts. He'll say even in First Timothy chapter 6, in his first letter to Timothy, he says, I fought the good fight of the faith, is the way he will uh, define it there. So there's this, this fighting quality, isn't there, that we find in the Christian life as we're striving against sin, we're striving against Satan, uh, we're striving against the world and, and the flesh and, and the devil. And we're always trying in the Lord's strength and with the Lord's power, to put to death that which is earthly in us. There's this fighting quality. But as Paul told the church that Timothy pastored there at that time, he told the church at Ephesus, we don't fight against flesh and blood. Uh, Do you wonder if too many Christians today spend most of their time fighting emotionally, mentally, argumentatively against flesh and blood? When he says, no, we we fight against the cosmic powers, the forces in the heavenly places. Uh, we fight against the prince of the power of the air, the, the spirit that rules and the sons of disobedience. That's the good fight of the faith. He says also, doesn't he, secondarily, I have finished my race. I fought the good fight. I have uh, finished the race. You know, I had a friend that used to run ultramarathons, uh, those especially crazy runners that just find great delight in running uh, 100 miles uh, over the course of, of 24 hours. And he would often talk about that race and its experience of, uh, of saying something. He doesn't enjoy the running component of the race. He enjoys having run and gotten to the finish line. And, of course, for those of us in Jesus Christ, there's great joy in the running. Uh, there, there's incredible joy, isn't there? Immense joy in actually coming to the very end. It was something that Paul even desired when he was speaking to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 and was saying, this is the last time I'm going to see you. We looked at this text several months ago. He told them in verse 24, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord to testify to the grace of God in the gospel. All I want, he said, was to reach the end and be faithful to the end. And now you see, don't you, many years later, here he is saying to Timothy, I've finished the race. Not only that, he says at the end, I've kept the faith. I've kept the faith. It's actually also athletic imagery used there. You could almost think about it more as I've kept the rules that belongs to this race. I've kept the rules that belongs to this context. He already said just a few paragraphs prior in verse 5 of Chapter 2, he's using all these images to talk about a gospel minister. And he said, Timothy, that you're to you're to labor in gospel ministry as an athlete who competes according to the rules. And so when he says, I've kept the faith, it very much seems like he's saying, I have kept to the commission that God gave me. And what was that commission? How to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles, to bring to light to everyone what is the mystery of God that was hidden for ages and generations. I've competed according to the rules. I fought the good fight of the faith. In each and every part of my life, it was my desire to strive to be faithful that I might endure until the very end. And you see, verse 8 simply brings us to the end. It's not only a text that calls us to face the inevitable and strive to be faithful. Uh, We might also say it calls us to to look to the eternal. He says, henceforth... There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. You know, one of those uh, events from Summer Olympics that has stuck to my brain, even though I was so young when it first happened, was in 1992. The games were in Barcelona, Spain that year, and and in these track and field events that we would have been watching on on television, and the the semifinal heat of the 400-meter race Uh, found an English runner by the name of Derek uh, Raymond who was running his race. And he was going strong after the starting gun for uh, 200 meters. And then it was there about the halfway point that he tore his hamstring. And if you were there in the stadium or or watching on TV, you, you saw what happens when people tear their hamstrings. Immediately the hand goes to the back of the leg and he just begins to hobble. And he keeps hobbling for 150 meters And then if you know the story, he gave up. Or he couldn't go any longer. And then the camera panned over to the side of the stadium near the security. And there was this man pushing through the security, racing out to the track. Because there was a dad who came down to the track, put his arm over his shoulder, and together they began the final 50 meters to get all the way to the finish line. It's this wonderful image, isn't it, of how it goes With people like you and me. Life's sorrows and sufferings, trials and temptations get you to a point where you just can't keep going. But the Lord, in His kindness, what does He do? His Word and Spirit, the ongoing ministry of His Son Jesus Christ, He comes alongside and begins to carry us to the finish line. And what I want you to see as we come to the finish line in our passage is just two final things that belong to Paul's life of enduring to the end. Uh, these are the things that really answer that question of how is it that Paul endured to the end. Verses 6 and 7 deal more with that he endured to the end. Verse 8 deals more with how he did it. And the first of the two final things I want you to see is that he, he looked to the Lord. Again, henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. You know, every runner in the ancient world of Paul's life, when you cross the finish line, you know there was nothing left but to receive the crown. And you cross the finish line today. You know, there's nothing left in the race to receive the medal, to receive the trophy. It would have been this, this laurel crown that would have belonged to the athletes of Paul's day. And he says, finally, at long last, that crown is gonna find its place on my head. And you see, he calls it this crown, crown of righteousness. Uh, you may know that so much of Paul's ministry, so much of his p- teaching, so much of his, his, his preaching was about Preaching, of what we refer to as justification, this good news of the gospel that through faith in Jesus Christ alone, God will declare people not guilty who should be declared guilty. That instead of counting us unrighteous as our sin deserves, the Lord mysteriously and majestically and mercifully, he counts us righteous because of what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. And it could be that as Paul's thinking here about the crown of righteousness, he's thinking about that final, full realization that belongs to the end of all things when the fullness of Christ's righteousness covers him. I think it's actually more likely in how the verse continues that he's thinking about the reality that he's soon to face, which is another day in court, another day in an earthly court, where the emperor named Nero was going to find Paul what? guilty, and condemn him to be executed. Paul says, no, I look to the Lord. I look to that heavenly courtroom when he's going to set all things right and he'll declare me as not guilty. Because you see, the text continues by telling us this crown of righteousness is laid up for him, which the Lord, Paul says, the righteous judge will award to me on that day. The kids and I have spent so many hours in recent weeks uh, watching World Cup games. And this is true of any sport, isn't it? But I suppose there's, I genuinely think there's an extra emotional quality attached to it in the world uh, of soccer, that there's this singular figure that can whip up the stadium into a frenzy in a second. When the referee blows his whistle and everyone thinks uh, injustice has been committed, you watch almost a riot ensue on the field. And the word there for judge, it's just telling us, isn't it, that there is but one righteous referee in the world. Uh, There's one just judge, and his name is Jesus Christ. I wonder when was the last time you you thought of Christ preeminently as a righteous judge. Uh, We we come to a time in the year, don't we, when, when many people, perhaps for the first time in a while, are thinking about these titles and names that belong to Jesus. Things like Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Prince of Peace, Savior of Sinners, Son of God from Eternity Past, the Holy One of Israel. When was the last time, though, you thought of Jesus as the righteous judge? How even does Jesus as the righteous judge help Paul endure to the end? Because Jesus says the righteous judge means all things. One day that he refers to as the day of judgment. At the end, the righteous judge will set everything right. All of the opposition that you currently face. All of the hatred that you experience. All of the animosity and hardship that the devil has thrown your way. There's a time coming when the Lord's going to make all of it right. There's a day coming when all the sad things become untrue for all eternity. Keep going a little while longer. For what is that final life breath that is before you in comparison to an eternity in God's presence? You look to the Lord. Lastly, you you long for the Lord. You see, he, he actually has this kind of gospel invitation that belongs to the end of the passage. He says, the righteous judge will award to me that crown of righteousness on that day. You see how verse eight ends? And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. There's a forward-looking, faith-filled reality that belongs to the Christian life of endurance and perseverance. I wonder if you're counted among those who are ready to die. Are you counted among those who are not ready to die? It's not the great good news of Jesus Christ that he appeared for the salvation of sinners like you and me. The great good news even comes to its end when he's going to return And bring that full and final salvation for all of his people. Might our small love of his future appearing. Might actually reveal a a small love for the Lord Jesus in our heart. Do you know that you can endure to the end. And you do it by looking to the Lord Jesus who is the righteous judge. And you do it by longing for the Lord's return. Knowing that he will one day. Set all things right for all eternity. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we do ask for your help this morning that we would remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, and preached in the gospel, declared to us by your word that our eyes would be fixed upon him, that we might find life in his name. And so run our race with endurance. We pray all of these things in our Savior's precious and beautiful name, amen. Well, as we uh, respond to God's word and again, rejoice in his kindness to us, let's do so as we turn our bulletins to our hymn of response printed there and sing, all glory be to Christ.